Everybody, well, there we go. Good morning. Um, it's good to be with you all. Uh, for those who I haven't met yet, I think I've met like Leo, like know everybody here, but uh, I'm Adam. I'm the other pastor here, and it really is just a joy and distinct privilege to have each of you here this morning. Obviously, we wanted to give uh, time to Wellspring this morning, so we didn't have much in the way of announcements. But just a reminder: if you're if you don't know kind of the logistics of what's going on, see me afterwards uh, or get or put, uh, sign up, put your name on a guest card in the back. This is, we send out a weekly email with the logistics of what's going on. But a reminder, we have uh, God Squad immediately, or you know, about 10 minutes following the service today. We have uh, Women's Ministry Bible Study uh, this Thursday. So um, as you're, you know, just, just a reminder about all those things. And if you don't have that information, see me so we can make sure you get signed up for, for all those things. Angela, just thank you for being here. Thanks for... Um, I knew it was a mistake for, for me to say anything. Um, thanks for being on the front lines and serving the vulnerable and the most needy in our community. So I am and we are just deeply grateful for Wellspring and what a privilege it is to partner with you. So, so thank you. Um, and just reminder, there's information uh, on the table uh, about training, just next opportunities they have. Um, so definitely stop by that or talk to Angela uh, before you go home. We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 this morning. But as you're turning, you know, many of you have probably never heard of his name, but without a doubt, a, a, a man named Robert Watson Watt what, had a massive impact on World War II. And really because of, you know, how consequential that war is in, in, you know, in history, he's a man with just massive impact on the last 75 years of history, yet most folks have never even heard of his name. And he had a, an important role in the war, though he never fired a shot, though he never directed a soldier, right? Soldiers and generals who, who did all that, but he, he had a massive impact, though his impact was really was unlikely at first because in 1935, as the war was approaching, he was a meteorologist who worked for the British Royal Air Force. And he was, as a meteorologist, he was working with this new technology called radar. And he was, he was, he was assignment with the Royal Air Force was to kind of use radar to better detect the weather and be able to predict, you know, sort of, you know, weather that, that pilots would be flying into. And, and so just that was his job. And he realized as part of studying all this, that radar could be used for more than just sort of picking up weather patterns and, and tracking incoming storms, but could be used to detect other airplanes, which meant he realized you could use radar to detect enemy airplanes and coordinate better with your own Air Force, which gives you quite the strategic edge if you're the only ones who know about this technology and the uses of it. But before sort of it could be employed, not only did he have to know that, that it could be used in this way, but he had to convince the commanding officers that this is what the technology could do. So not only did he discover the use of radar, but he's knocking on every door in the late 1930s, and he is talking to every link in the chain of command, and he is just proving in test after test what they had in this technology, and they were the only ones who really had cracked, the, you know, sort of figured this out, and so compelled and so captured by, you know, so convinced by the, his vision that they built their entire air defense around radar technology. They just were all in on it. And so despite the superior resources of the German army, the Royal Air Force was able to not just survive, but really have superiority at aerial superiority at times. And then they were able to share it with the allies and eventually stop the Nazi advance and win the war. And so Watt goes down in history as one of the key but just unsung heroes of the war. 
He's a man whose, whose job was not to be the active one fighting. He wasn't even to design the strategy or make the decisions, but he was the one who to prepare the way for those who would be fighting, to sort of pave the way for this thing to come through, to sort of, in a sense, clear the way for radar so radar could, could sort of get the credit for, for what it was about to happen. He was supposed to get, get the technology out of the way and sort of be out of the way. He was long forgotten in history as the fight, as the soldiers and the pilots really took center stage. But he had this role of paving the way for others to come behind him. In our passage this morning, we read the life and ministry of John the Baptist. We first met John in chapter 1 of Luke. He's, a, he's really a remarkable man, had a remarkable ministry. In, in scripture, he's called great by God himself. He had the Holy Spirit even from within the womb. He is a holy man who gave his life to one purpose, to pave the way for the Lord, to, to, to let others know before, before the Lord was here that, that who is coming and to get ready a people. And John is such a remarkable man, in fact, that even in this passage, people were wondering if he himself was the Messiah. But he was very clear, and we see in Scripture that, of course, he is not, but he was a man set apart for a purpose, not to make a name for himself, not to talk about his role, not to sort of, sort of bring sort of his name and reputation up, but as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry in chapter 4, we first see John sent out to declare the news of the salvation that is here in Jesus Christ, not to be the rescuer of the people, but to point and prepare the way for the true rescuer, to make sure it is known as, as Jesus is coming, that Jesus is the one in human history. He is the one that, that is set apart, that history belongs to. And so as we look at the ministry of John the Baptist here in chapter 3, we're going to see his ministry, but we're going to see what it means for our lives. But more than him or more than us, we're going to see something far more glorious than John and his ministry we're just going to see the reality that Jesus is the one and only. Jesus, the one and only. So with that, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read, but uh, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 22 this morning, but the passage really breaks down in sort of three distinct units. So we're going to be, we're going to read the entire passage this morning as we go along, but as you stand, we're just going to read verses 1 through 6. We stand uh, just as a way of showing our reverence to the Word and the holiness of the Word. So we're going to begin by reading 1 through 6, but then we'll read the rest as we go along. But as we go along, just for co continuity, and uh, we'll remain seated through the rest of the passage, but we'll read 1 through 6 together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of, Judah, of Judea, and Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region, Iturea, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, you may be seated. main idea that we're going to be looking at this morning is Jesus is the one and only, and we're going to look at that through three points this morning. And point number one is what we see in verses one through six is John's prophecy. John's prophecy. 
So in verses 1 and 2, we get the time frame for when all this is happening and, and that, that who's in charge at this time, both in government and in the temple. And we can verify sort of through Scripture, but then through other sources that this is around the year 27 to 29 A.D., as you're reading that list, even if you have a pretty limited view of sort of world history, you may recognize some of these, uh, uh, some of these names as like, wait, this is, a, this is a bad group of men, right? This is sort of like sort of some of the villains of history that we're reading about here. The, the, the men he's listing, the men who are in charge, the men who are ruling in Rome are, are evil men at this time. And they use evil means to, 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 that just marks their rule. Right, we've all probably heard that phrase. I mean, I know we've heard the phrase like drain the swamp in Washington, right? We have a former president who liked that phrase a lot. Like this is, this is the swamp in Rome, right? I mean, this is just like this, is, this is like, this is bad people ruling in bad ways. But then it's not just in Rome that this problem was. It's not just sort of governmental rulers as we see Annas and Caiaphas. They're, though they are in the temple, they're not known for their holiness, they're not marked by sort of being set apart and, and being faithful to God's mission. No, they're known for nepotism and for favoritism and for extortion even in the temple. This is dark times. And it's really meant to, to be this obvious backdrop and the, sort of this symbolic backdrop that you, you sort of, as, you, as you're reading this in the first century, you can't miss it, that this is, a, this is a dark time and it's meant to be stark. That as John begins to speak, that though it's dark right now, the light is about to shine. See, don't worry. You see, as these people are in charge, don't worry. History doesn't belong to these evil men. It doesn't belong to these people who intend evil on the earth. It doesn't belong to the, those who are ruling the temple with, 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 with favoritism and nepotism and who use evil means. No, history doesn't belong to them. I, John's about to make clear, no, history belongs to one man. And the light's about to shine. And then even we see that, so not only is it a dark time, the news of salvation is coming from what would normally be considered a dark place. So this is coming from the wilderness. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now what's the wilderness represent? So the wilderness for so long for God's people has represented people wandering. It's represented that sort of people were wandering, that, that, that they, they were away from God. But now it's saying, hey, there's news coming that you can not wander, but you can come home because the Savior is now here. Because the wilderness represented for generations a dark place for the people of God. The place where they wandered. Now, God protected them in their wandering years, but they remained in the wilderness. They remained not at home, not in the promised land because of their sin. And now he says, a voice crying out from that wilderness, crying out from this dark place, will cry out, and it will be answered in the one who is here. The one who is here is not just here to bring you out of the wilderness to a temporary promised land, but he is here to bring you to a permanent home. And so in John, we have not just sort of one giving the message of Isaiah as is, as is quoted here in verses 4 through 6, but, but a new Isaiah, a really a new prophet proclaiming the salvation of the Lord. And his prophecy is just filled with, hey, the Lord will come and every mountain shall be made low and every valley shall be filled. Not just indicating that, okay, the, the, the path of the Lord will be smooth, that the Lord will make a way, but he, he's representing the way it's, this salvation is going to happen is that the proud will be brought down, will be lowered. The self-sufficient will be brought down and the humble 
shall be exalted and shall, be, shall receive salvation. He's saying that when the Lord comes, there's just a complete reversal of, of, the, of the natural human condition. There's a complete reversal of natural human logic. And then it declares that all flesh, all flesh shall see salvation. Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity shall see salvation. And so in what was a dark day and a dark time where many were wondering, will the Messiah, like we've been hearing about the Messiah for a long time. We've been hearing about him long, even before Isaiah, we've been promised the Messiah. Is he really going to come? Is light really going to shatter the darkness? John's here to say, get, get ready, because he's here. So many, as they were hearing this list of names in the beginning, as they were aware of who was ruling Rome, as they were aware of who was in charge in the temple, were thinking, okay, I'm glad he's here because he's going to bring down Caesar with his militant might. But John's also declaring, no, it's not going to bring down Caesar with militant might. He's going to bring down the proud with his humble humanity. And so he's saying, get ready because salvation is here. All will see salvation and all that is wrong, all that is crooked, can and will be made straight, and it is available to everyone. And what has been promised for, for, for thousands of years, he is now saying, and, and it's here. But, but he's also making clear, as, as, as we continue through, through the passage that we're going to continue reading, but even if he makes here, listen, but listen, as you think about salvation now being here, you need to start realizing, though, this is salvation you need. We can't start to say, okay, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to take down Rome. He's sort of saying, no, no, so the salvation is here. The Messiah is here. And our greatest problem isn't, isn't in Rome, but the greatest problem is internal to us. And so he's offering something far greater than, than sort of taking down Rome. He's offering the salvation of God. So the dividing line of human history is here. And John is making it very clear. And you need to be on the right side of this man. Because he is the one who both elevates and brings down. So the second thing we see is John's message. John's message. So for that, we're going to read... Verses 7 through 14, it says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise these, raise these stones up. From, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. One of the things I 
I just think is so compelling about John, and we just it's just obvious about as, as John gives his message, right? John doesn't beat around the bush, right? He's not sort of like, you know, this isn't like how to win friends and influence people, right? This isn't one of those kind of messages. Like if he's going viral on, you know, Instagram, it's, it's in a negative way. It's people mocking him and doing all this kind of stuff, right? He's just, he's just saying it how it is. And as he's noting, salvation is here. The dividing line of history is here. And if you are thinking, and if you're waiting for him, and you're thinking, oh, this is good news because he's going to take down my enemies. If you see that the primary problem you have is that outside of you and lives in Rome and is ruling over you, he, he's about to give, no, no, no. Something worse than someone sitting in power in Rome. You see, your problem is sin and the judgment you face because of sin. See, John wants to know that the primary problem in our lives for people before God is not external to you, but the, it's the sin in you. And then he says, you brood of vipers. Now that, that, that image is really meant to, con- it's actually full, it's meant to really conjure up three things. And so one is he's just meant to say, as you call somebody a brood of vipers, I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's meant to be a slam, right? And he's kind of saying, like, you're, you're dangerous. Like, don't you know, like, you're, you're not safe to be around. So I, I mean, I would just say, if I have a viper in the house, like, I'm not going to grab it. I'm going to run away. Right now, I might be a wuss, but it's just what I'm doing. I'm getting away. And if we have, like, I don't know technically what a brood of vipers is. I know it's more than one. If we ever have a brood of vipers in our basement, like, we're just moving. Like, we're not, we're going to cut our losses and just go. Because just be around a brood of vipers. Like, there's something like, this is unsafe for me to be around, right? Like, there's just, he's meant to say that. Like, no, you're, you're, you're not, like, who you think you are. You're dangerous, not safe. But then he, he kind of talks about, like, you're this brood of vipers. You're just looking to flee from the wrath to come. And what, what he's saying is, is like, what a, what you're, you're, you're like this snake that gets near the heat and then just runs away. You're not looking to change. You don't see the problem as you. You, you, you get near the flames and then you just go, what? You're trying to get out of trouble. But you're not, you're not changing who you are. But then really the, the biggest image that it's meant to conjure is, and he, he, he's noting, listen, you're claiming, you're, you're so proud of your heritage. You're, you're, you're from Abraham. You're in the line of Abraham. You, you think you're, you're good because of just your biological heritage, because of your ethnic heritage. You just think, well, I'm good. Check. I, I, I'm not worried about the coming wrath. I'm not worried about the coming judgment. I'm not worried about the coming Messiah because look at the, the line I'm from. As he calls them vipers, it's meant to say, no, no, listen, your lives don't look holy. You, 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 look, you don't look like you're from the line of Abraham. You look like the line of the, uh, that you're from the line of the original serpent. And he, he's, he's, he's trying to say, listen, you, you think your, 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 your physical ancestry is what is saving you. Don't you know, God, God could take these rocks and raise up children from Abraham. You, 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 he's not looking for an ethnicity. He's, he's looking for those who come in faith. Don't, don't you know that the only people who are spiritually alive were once spiritually dead? You can't claim anything by your biology. You can't claim anything just because of this heritage that you claim. No, no, no. You need to get on the right side of the one who is here. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ who is about to be introduced. And, he's, and listen, when we say about this, it's not just that faith is 
is, is, is warm, fuzzy feelings, or it, you know, listen, I'm not asking you to put a bumper sticker on your car, or he's not saying, okay, it's about attending temple this many times. It, it, faith is marked by a changed life. Faith is, is marked by repentance. And so now that he has their attention, they're asking, the crowd begins to ask in verse 10, well then, what then shall we do? Because they're realizing that they're, they, they've been assuming the wrong thing. They've been assuming because they're in the line of Abraham biologically that they're good to go. And so he asks what they can do. And, and at this moment, another thing I just love about John, John doesn't sort of, okay, you know what? Brood of vipers, that was a little harsh. I know you're trying your best. Let's just maybe overstate in this. He doesn't say, you know what? If you want to get right with God, go to temple every week and then once a month bring a friend so that he can hear to you. He's not, he's not doing any of that. He says right quite clearly, you need to repent. Turn from your sinful ways towards this one who is coming. And by the way, repentance isn't just a vague idea. Repentance looks like something very specific. He then gives three examples. Uses, he's talking about those who would use their influence or their money or their authority improperly, who would use these things that they've been given in their life, how they have been how they have been tempted to, di- to misuse them in their life. And he says repentance looks like, well, at the, very notion, at the very beginning, using these things properly, not taking advantage of people. Stop. Basically, in short, taking your cues from this culture or from the king of this world and start thinking with the ethics of the, ki- with the king of the coming kingdom and the permanent kingdom in mind. You start living your life in accordance to those ethics, not the ethics of this world. But then he gives just three specific examples to the three specific groups that had asked him because he, he's, he's noting that, listen, for each person, repentance is going to look different. Repentance isn't this one-size-fits-all category, but repentance is finding what pulls me away from God. What am I, what am I doing that, 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 that sort of pulls me away from God? And turning from that and putting my faith in Jesus Christ Instead that of turning from specific sins and turning to Jesus. Phil Riken writes, the exam- these examples teach us that in every situation in life has its own typical temptations, its own dominating forms of depravity. Office workers are tempted to grumble. Laborers are tempted to cut corners. Businessmen are tempted to be greedy. Scholars and musicians are tempted to be arrogant. Teachers are tempted to be impatient. Children are tempted to rebel against their authority. People who have been wronged are tempted to become bitter. People who suffer are tempted to self-pity. And even these are only example. The point is that God calls every one of us to repent of our own personal sins. And so one of the things John's making clear is repentance, as we think about it, isn't a vague notion. Coming to Christ isn't just an idea. It's, it's not just a general lifestyle of godliness or a few put-ons or sort of a habit that we put on on Sunday. It's about a total life of turning from one thing and going to another. Now John's making, just to be clear, his, John's message is not that good works will save us. We're going to touch more on this in just a moment. But repentance looks like turning from the here and now and investing in the coming king. So as, as John's proclaiming judgment is coming, he's not saying, all right, judgment's coming. Let's, let's watch it happen. He's saying judgment is coming. So watch your life. Guard your soul. Do not presume upon your heritage. You, you need to have a faith that is of your own. You know, I grew up 
in a Christian home. I grew up with Christian parents. I grew up going to church every Sunday and most Wednesday nights. And I didn't know Jesus Christ because I presumed, and my faith was built on, we went to church every Sunday, and I have parents that are Christians, and I have good ethics. And so if I would have heard a warning like John was proclaiming, you see, I would have assumed it meant he, he was primarily warning those outside the walls of the church. Just like here, they were falsely assuming they were part of Abraham's lineage because of their biology. So I ignored warnings that were given to me. Now God in his mercy gave me more time and in college I repented of my sins. But, but, but John is urgent because the message he is proclaiming is urgent. He is saying even now the axe is swinging. And I just want to be very clear that attendance at living hope because you choose to be here, because your parents bring you here, because your spouse wants you here. Attendance at living hope saves no one. There's no safety that comes upon us by walking in these doors. There's no safety we can presume because we have Christian and godly parents that are raising us. Turning from sin to Jesus Christ is the only and it is the sure place of safety. Third point we see is this, John's hope. For that, we're going to look at verses 15 through 22. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear the, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So, so clear was John's message, so powerful, such a call to repentance he makes that in verse 15, the people are beginning to wonder, is he the Christ? Is he the one that he's talking about? So passionate was his pleading for repentance. So holy was his life and so unmistakable his call. So powerful the demonstration of God's power in their midst that they, they're wondering, hey, is, is John the one? So scared of this message and of this man, evil Herod locked him up in prison. And yet John is quite clear. I'm not the one. I preach with some power, but I, I preach with power about the one, but I'm not the one. You see, I tell you to repent but not to escape my winnowing fork, but his. See, the one who is coming, John makes it, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now, in this culture and day, it was considered not just dirty, but, but, but shameful to untie the sandals of another. It was just considered so lowly. 
and John who's considered great before God in Scripture. He, he's so unworthy. In comparison, he says, I'm not even worthy to do the most unworthiest of things for this man. Just as how great the chasm is between us. He says, listen, I'm only able to baptize you with water. I have no power. I can dip you into the water and I can pull you out. But Jesus, Jesus comes with real power. He comes with the Holy Spirit and fire. He has the power of God and those he baptizes receive the same power. And he comes with fire. He purifies. He burns away the old man. You... (laughs) And your repentance can be sorrowful. You can put on some new habits. Jesus can change you from the inside out. He has all the power to change and transform. And his baptism isn't just with water, but it's with the Holy Spirit. Just a note, we're going to say much more about this. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in several weeks we're going to be doing a series on the Holy Spirit and the indwelling work of the Spirit in the life of the believer What's it mean that we are, as Christians, filled with the Spirit and baptized with the Spirit and made alive in the Spirit and and, and just to recognize that it's the Holy Spirit who who transforms us as we cooperate with Him and His work and His life. We're going to be talking much more about this in the coming weeks, but I just want to note simply one thing for today. That if Jesus Himself had the Holy Spirit descend upon Him, and the next time we see Jesus, as he begins his ministry, it's going to be in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, and Jesus filled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, and who never had a straying thought, who never had an unkind deed, but was perfect, and yet in his life and in his ministry, pressed into and relied upon the Holy Spirit, just say, how much more do we to do anything in this life, need the Holy Spirit. And yet, and this this is probably obvious, but how often, I'll just speak for me, how often in my arrogance and in my foolishness and in my sinfulness, not look primarily to the Holy Spirit, but to myself to strengthen me for life. We just need to know how desperate we are for the Holy Spirit to to know this book and to parent and to live for him and to walk in unity. We are just such a needy people and so we should pursue him daily. We should pursue the Holy Spirit hourly. And thank God and be amazed that he first pursues us and to the end he pursues us. But here In verse 21, Jesus arrives at the scene. Better than John, he's arriving with power. So, obvious, right? Jesus Christ is greater than John. John good, Jesus greater. We can can see that. that, that's easy. But John's hope is not just that Jesus is greater than him. But here's the hope for John, and here's the hope for all fellow sinners with John. Not just that we can repent and turn away from something. Here is our hope why when this great day of separation happens that we can be found safely in the storehouse, not tossed away like chaff. Because 
Jesus Christ came, not just as the perfect one, not just with, as the one whom the Father is pleased, not just as the one full of the Holy Spirit, but as the one who, though he had no sins to, needing to be washed away, but he so identified with sinners, he was baptized with them, foreshadowing the death he would die for them and the life he would be raised to for them. So humble is this Jesus, so willing to be identified with sinners, though every sinner is not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He never asks us to do that, but instead he's the one who gets down on his hands and his knees to wash their feet and to wash all of them and to provide a total cleansing from all their sins. John's hope and the hope of every sinner is not just the perfection of Jesus, is not just the sinlessness of Jesus, it's that he so identifies with sinners. He is perfect and sinless for them. See, our hope is in the one and only Jesus Christ. And so, as we conclude this passage, just, just two thoughts. One is that this passage, the the message of this prophet John, the message of this entire book is quite clear. That the day of judgment is coming. And it is not far off for any of us. So for all of us, whether, we, whether that day will be marked in days or in decades, it is coming at a moment you don't know, and it's coming with the blink of an eye, and it's coming with no exceptions. And only Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who is, a, who is the holy God, he will separate those who have repented to him and bring them safely in glory from those who refuse to bend the knee on this life Now those who refuse to bend the knee in this life will see him as the God of all glory and power and majesty, but they will find not in his power being used in mercy towards them, but in his wrath being poured out on their sin. And this message could not be more true. It could not be more urgent. You need to make sure you are walking in repentance and are right with the holy God. You can't claim your parents' faith, you can't claim your Bible knowledge, you can't count on your attendance here, you can't claim sort of, sort of thinking yourself as, as, as better than the sinful world around you. A repentant heart trusting in Jesus Christ and nothing less will do. But we also don't need anything else. So I or so many people in this room would love to talk with, would count it amongst the deepest privileges we can have to talk with you more if you have questions about this, if you have questions about what's faith in Christ really look like. How, how do you know that I'm walking in repentance? What's that, what's that mean for me? We'd love to talk with you more about this. The second thing I want to note is this. Let me to say. John was the last prophet of Jesus to point to him before his coming. 
but the message he proclaimed is not limited to him. But rather now, it's for all who know not just what Jesus would do, but what he has done. It's now on all of them to proclaim. So let us be those who, who tell the message of Jesus Christ, who, 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 of what he has done for sinners, the life offered in him. Let us join with the proclaiming. Let us be those with, with changed lives and repentant hearts, but an urgency born out of, uh, out of a love and out of the brokenness of the condition of those who don't know Jesus Christ. Let us join with the proclamation that we have nothing impressive. We have nothing to offer except for one thing. Jesus, the one and only Savior. To close, I'm just going to close a little different. I'm just going to to just respond to what I believe John's urgency in in this message is. Just as we close, I'm going to leave and CP's going to come up and we're going to sing in a few minutes, but just give you a a chance to respond yourself. I think there are people here that need to do business with God this morning who need to who need to ask, am I really right with God? Have I repented of my sins? Have I turned to Jesus Christ? Am I presuming on something else? And that you have an, I want to give you the opportunity with the urgency that I think it requires to, to do business with God this morning. And for, for others, this message to the world could not be more urgent. So I want to give you a chance right now to pray for those who are in your life who need to desperately hear of the coming judgment and, the, and of the safety that is provided in Jesus Christ. And so I want to just give you a few moments to pray in your own seats, to pray if you need to do business with God yourself, and to pray for those who so desperately need to hear of the salvation offered in Jesus. Mm-hmm.